0: Almost all of the birds would dunk all of the hard food and in the field, it was just only a couple, a minority of individuals that would dunk. And so it seems that just to prevent theft, uh, the birds were flexibly adjusting their foraging decisions.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Field Reports podcast, where we talk about fieldwork stories and discuss various topics about field biology this episode, we have Dr. Julie moran Ferran from the University of Ottawa. Thanks for being on the show, Julie.
0: Thanks uh, for the invitation.
1: Could you briefly explain our audience about what you work on?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'm mainly interested in understanding the evolution of cognitive processes, and these include information use, uh, learning and memory, for instance. And uh, we know a lot on uh, how animals learn, for instance, And we know a lot on the functioning of nervous systems, so on the proximate questions related to cognition, but comparatively to this knowledge, we know very little about how uh, cognitive processes evolve and why certain species, for instance, are good at learning certain things compared with others. So it's really that intersection between ecology, the natural challenges in the life of animals, and uh, the evolution of the, the, the cognitive processes that, uh, that fuels uh, most of my work.
1: Okay, so what are your um, study animals, what do you study?
0: So I've been working on birds uh, since uh, ever since my first project actually in behavioral ecology. Uh, at the moment, I'm studying uh, two members of the Paridae family. So uh, here in Ottawa, I study black-capped chickadees And uh, I've been working also on the Great Tits in Europe, and I'm still continuing uh, this work on Great Tits through uh, some collaborations. So they're small passerine birds, and uh, they're very inquisitive, very curious, um, very interesting to work with, especially in link with field work, because uh, they will come very readily to uh, devices or feeders, so they're not afraid of, well, yeah, I haven't figure out anything that really makes them afraid for now. So they're, they will come and they're really um, participative in experiments. So that's great. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, um, I, I have a question about that, but I think I'll ask uh, in a while. Um, could you tell us a bit about your field sites where you do mm-hmm. your work?
0: Yeah, so here in Ottawa, uh, in Ontario, we uh, we set up a number of field sites. So when I arrived here, I scouted around and I selected a series of, four. Of, up to now we have used, uh, I think, I think 15, 20 sites. Uh, and it starts from in the middle of Ottawa in uh, actually urban parks. And then it goes out of the city into the suburb and all the way into forested areas away from, from Ottawa. So it's... It's convenient in the sense that it's just nearby the university. It's a couple of minutes away, up to uh, an hour drive away. And this is the main uh, work that's happening on chickadees. It's on these uh, on these sites, and then I have some collaborative projects uh, elsewhere as well.
1: I've noticed that some birds in in different. So I, I live in Sydney, um, so mm-hmm. I, and I'm from India. When I compare the boldness of the birds there and here, I see that get very close to people here for some reason. It's just um, um, just an observation. So what do you think about that?
0: Yes, uh, well, there's one phenomenon that's called island tameness. So you may have heard about this. Actually, I, I benefited from it also uh, as a PhD student. I was working in Barbados. Barbados is a small island and there's no... Um, native predators, really ground predators, uh, there's been, um, uh, uh, mongooses and things like that, that were, um, that, that, uh, invaded afterwards from boats and things like that. But really there's not a lot of ground predators in Barbados. And, uh, that's one reason that's been, uh, given for why the birds are so tame there. And that was my first, uh, field study, uh, uh away from, from Canada. And I was so shocked by, how close you could approach the birds, and I could actually make observations on the birds even without binoculars. I could just take notes and record everything I was seeing on them. They would just feed uh, maybe, uh, you know, three meters away from me. So maybe that's what uh, you're experiencing there uh, in Sydney.
1: All right. Um, So could you tell us what got you interested in in your current work? How did you get interested in your current work?
0: Mm -hmm. Um. A lot of things. Uh, there's one aspect of my work that I kind of developed by accident. I would say it's the social part. So I'm, I'm studying uh, partly uh, individual learning and memory and individual decision making. And that's what I've kind of intuitively wanted to develop. Uh, but it seems that every time I do this, uh, the social behavior kind of imposes itself on my work. And I uh, if, I, if you allow it, I will tell you a little anecdote to, to explain that. So during that uh, doctoral work uh, in Barbados that I was referring to, I wanted to study uh, foraging innovations. So it's been observed that um, the grackles there, which are ichthyrids, uh, they started dipping hard food uh, into water. And that's a behavior that had not been studied before and had not, seen, had not been seen in that species. And so I, I started uh, studying, you know, uh, the hypothetical function of the behavior. Is it to ease ingestion of large and dry food items? And and the social behavior totally imposed itself because what I noticed is that there was a lot of food stealing going on. And the birds would t- take time at processing the food. And then suddenly they would be robbed of food. And, and there would be other grapples that would come in and snatch the food and run away with it. And uh, so I decided to take the birds to captivity for a short period, over a couple of days. And it was such a contrast between what I would be observing in the field. So when the birds were isolated in captivity, almost all of the birds would dunk all of the hard food. And in the field, it was just only a couple, a minority of individuals that would dunk. And so it seems that just to prevent theft, uh, the birds were flexibly adjusting their foraging decisions and that's when I started adding uh, a social component to to my research. Uh, and so I guess a lot of the things that I'm interested in are just um, self-imposed by what the data tells me or those interesting things that I discover when I conduct research. I let my interest um, be influenced by what I, what I see when I'm watching the animals.
1: That's very interesting. So could you tell us... Oh. How does dunking helps, help them from kleptoparasitism? So when
0: they, were, uh, yeah, when they were dunking food, they could ingest those food items more quickly and probably also more comfortably. This is something I was not able to measure, but yes, it did increase their foraging efficiency. However, they had to release the food item in the water in the process of dipping it. And then that's when the kleptoparasite would come and steal the food away. Uh, but some birds that were actually uh, displaying a, a, an alternative dunking technique where they would hold the food food in the bill without releasing it. And that was efficient at, at uh, preventing kleptoparasism. but that was not as fast uh, to eat the food. So there were all of these little decisions to be made by the birds on the spot like this. Okay, do I dunk? Do I dunk with a protective technique or with the other technique? And how do I... Estimate. What, how do I evaluate the risk of kleptoparasitism? I was really surprised about the flexibility that the birds displayed uh, in in what looked to me like a simple situation from the start.
1: Great. Um, so in the past, you've written about um, a, a compa- you've written a comparative study about um, kleptoparasitism, pa- which is um, food theft in birds, um, yeah. but t- uh, to see whether it is brains or, or brawn uh, from the type. Yeah. Could you tell us about that?
0: Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yes, so um, it's it's hard um, to to disentangle all of the different hypotheses as to why there are some families of birds that would express kleptoparasitism or not. So I started reading and collecting all of the literature that's been published on that, and then I listed all the hypotheses that people um, that people uh, put out. And there's basically there's some that are just about the environment, if you're in, in an open environment, you can see opportunities to steal food more easily than in a closed environment. Uh, but once you control for uh, the type of environment and the value of the food item, because of course, uh, let's say fish or, or carcasses, like big, big uh, items are more worth being stolen than small ones. So once you control for this, then you can test um, alternative hypothesis, and one was uh, as to whether the kleptoparasite had a uh, large residual brain once controlling for their body size, uh, which would suggest maybe that there's some elements of strategy or learning involved uh, in their behavior. And, and, and the other aspect was just, well, is it just their body size and them being larger than their host, and they can actually scare them away from the food? And uh, one aspect of the study that I thought was interesting is to compare, not just uh, do a a, a comparative analysis as we do usually and look at the effect of all of these variables on whether the family includes uh, that behavior in its repertoire or not, whether they're thefts or or not thefts, but also I could compare the brain size, the residual brain size uh, and the body size of uh, the kleptoparasite and its host. And it seems that the kleptoparasite had bigger uh, larger is brain size than host. If I remember well my own study. That was 10 years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, so do you have any stories of, from your field work that you'd like to share with us?
0: From the field work? Yes, there's, there's so many actually because it's a lot of fun working in the field. You have uh, a lot of well, actually a lot of bad surprises and a lot of good surprises too, but uh, I think one of the days that is most memorable for me in the field is uh, when I was a postdoc at uh, Oxford University, I was working on developing an, um, an operant learning box, which is like a Skinner box, uh, and that serves to, to measure learning, and my idea was to, instead of taking the animals to captivity and measuring their learning ability there, I wanted to develop a technology that I could take with me and just leave in the field and leave the animals interact with it um, but it was very difficult technically to come to like to put all the parts together for um, the box to work first and even after working for several months on just making the the box work with all the electronics and all of this and I'm not that much of a technology person, although you kind of have to become uh, uh, one when you do the kind of work I do. Um, After several months spent in the field, you know, trying out different versions and just trying to see if the birds would come in the box or not, uh, I was still not sure if it would eventually work and I was starting to be a bit depressed and anxious about it. Um, But then one day I was in the field and I was hidden and I was watching a bird interact with it with my binoculars and suddenly the bird um, pressed all, it, like it had a sequence of good, uh, uh, of correct answers that was so long that was probably not due to chance, and I could see the bird using all of the different options on the box in Whiteham Woods, and uh, I was so happy on that day. I can send you the the video where, uh, uh, where we can see uh, that early bird there on a prototype of the learning box. It, it doesn't look like this anymore. That much it changed a bit uh, over the different versions, but I still kept that bit of video uh, that I was recording while watching live in the woods because I sometimes when I'm, you know, when things don't work well and I'm like, okay, this is, is this is a silly enterprise to try and measure cognition in the field. It's so difficult. I, I think about that day there where I had this uh, nice surprise, and that gives me a bit more. That fuels a bit of energy to to keep going.
1: That's very interesting. So you you also mentioned you have some bad experiences that you've learned from.
0: Well, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's probably um, uh, similar to a lot of people, like, you know, being alone and being tired and having a lot of heavy things. It seems like my whole postdoc in Oxford, I was just having so many like heavy things to carry on me. But yeah, I had a couple of times where I was afraid. For instance, one day I came back at a feeder and the feeder was on the ground and um, there was something weird in it. It seemed like it was stuffed with something I could not see. And I was wondering what was happening. And then when I bent over it, there was a a gray squirrel in it. So somehow the squirrel managed to chew through the aluminum of the cover and break the cover and get in and probably fell on the ground and then he was too fat. It was stuck <laughs> in the tube of the feeder and I thought the squirrel was dead. I was it, I was so sad but then when I leaned over it, the squirrel actually opened one eye on the side of the tube of the feeder and yeah, so it, it was frightening but then at the end it was okay and I, I was able to kind of push it out of the tube and it, it just ran off so so that was good. But yeah, there's a couple of times where are like, okay, I hope this guy is okay. Squirrels are actually... some Most people that work with birds in the field, they don't really like squirrels because they chew a lot on our technology.
1: Oh, so, so we had a um, an episode about squirrels, so our last episode is about squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so could you describe a typical day uh, during your field work?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here in, in Ottawa, because the field site is the field sites are so close to uh, where we live, we just meet up at university early morning, let's say seven, something like that, and then uh, we we are always working in teams, and then we go in the field. We drive there. Uh, we will misnets uh, chickadees, so that's in the fall. Uh, the fall season is when the chickadees uh, they start forming these flocks on their communal winter home range. And so as soon as they're sight fidel and they're attached there, we start catching them with misnets. We mark them. Uh, We also run a couple of personality tests, exploration, aggression in hand, uh, uh, neophilia, Uh, and, and then we do that for a couple of hours. And when this is done, we just go back home and relax and the nice thing with uh, netting is that um, you don't net when it's raining, you don't net when it's windy, and neither when it's cold. So it's basically all of the days where the weather is nice and you feel like being out, it's, it's the days where we go out. Uh, so this is in the fall. And then once when, when all of the birds are, are marked, then we start the data collection with the automated feeders and, and automated devices. So then a typical day is more... Of driving around and actually maintaining the feeders, checking what the squirrels have damaged and, <laughs> and replacing it, uh, and and re- changing the batteries, getting the data, that kind of thing. So it's it's a bit less. Uh, we we are less in contact with the birds during this part of, of the season, but still they're really easy to see them because there's no more leaves in the trees. So uh, yeah, we can take some time to actually check check out what they're what they're doing. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty typical. We, we are on an inverse uh, field season, I would say, uh, compared to people that study the breeding season. So uh, often my colleagues ask me about that, that time of year or in September how my summer field work was. And then I mention actually I was not in the field, I was reading and writing, and now I, we're going now in the field. So it, we're kind of the, on, on the reverse than people that study the breeding season.
1: Okay, so um, when you're not doing your field work, or, or when it is not possible to do your field work due to rain or anything, what do you do?
0: When it's not possible to do the field do work,
1: your field work due to rain or some other reason, what what do you do during that time?
0: Oh well, then we just go back to the office and we work on something else. Luckily enough, normally October is fine. Uh, November is. Yeah, not too bad. December starts to be hard to find any good days. Normally, we try to have everything, all the marking done by the end of November. But we do work really hard on days where the weather is nice, so that make sure that we have enough time. And uh, since uh, since a year now, we have two teams working at the same time so that it's very efficient and we can spread out uh, and cover all sites quickly.
1: Great. Uh, could you tell us about the current projects that you're working on? Pardon me? Could you tell us about the projects that you're currently working on?
0: Uh-huh, yes. So apart, uh, well, the, this Ottawa chickadee project, we uh, it, we are studying in part um, the social behavior of birds, so social networks, social information use, but also their food hoarding behavior and spatial memory because um, uh, the scatter hoarders like black Cap chickadee, they will hoard uh, food items, uh, one, uh, one item in one different places, So that requires a lot of memory of remembering where they hoard the food. So we're interested um, in, in both the individual uh, cognition traits like uh, spatial memory, but also how uh, they can use information about food from conspecifics. And, um, and also there's an ecological aspect to it because of this urbanization gradient that the field sites are located on. So we're in, uh, I'm interested at the moment in individual differences in both the um, like the memory and the individual learning uh, component of cognition, social behavior, and also personality traits, and linking all of this with the, comparing all of this along the urbanization gradients. So so that's part of the um, chickadee work that we're doing at the moment. And also I'm in uh, Human Frontiers uh, Science pro- uh, Programme. Uh, Grant with uh, three other uh, co PIs. Uh, one is Alexis Chen in, in France uh, and Thomas Serre uh, in, in the US and uh, Marine Ver- Veroy in uh, Belgium. And it's a multidisciplinary project where we're trying to study uh, the, the fitness consequence of individual va- differences in learning. And this is happening uh, in a great population in France that lives along uh, an elevation gradient which also makes it quite interesting from the ecological challenge on cognition point of view because uh, the birds that live at low altitude have very different uh, living conditions than the one that live live high up the mountains. And uh, one of my PhD students is actually comparing cognition along uh, that elevation gradient. And um, yeah, and I have a couple of other projects on the side. For instance, I'm uh, starting a new project on um, on cognition in crickets, which is not a typical uh, species uh, study organism for cognition, but I kind of like them from seeing them. Uh, I use them in one of my courses. I teach a lab in animal behavior, and I use them for the lab, and I thought they're really interesting, and they are easy to keep and everything. So right now I'm not doing any anything in the field with them, but I would love to be... Uh, doing something more uh, field-based with them.
1: Okay. You also mentioned in your website that you um, use approaches from experimental psychology uh, for your work. Could you give us yeah. an example um, uh, to describe how you use yeah.
0: that? Yes. So, for instance, uh, the learning box, the operant box that I designed uh, as a postdoc and that we're still using at the moment. Uh, for instance, in the in the project in France, uh, that is um, really uh, a device and techniques, and that even the way that they measure learning through accuracy and change in choice accuracy over time, that is all inspired from experimental psychology. So it's basically a Skinner box, uh, and and so a lot of the techniques and the tools that I'm using are inspired from uh, either comparative psychology or experimental psychology. Uh, I study also spatial memory in, in black-capped chickadees here. I have a master's student who just finished her, uh, her thesis on that. And um, the spatial memory tests, are uh, the, way, like, the way they were devised, they were devised by people that studied in, in psychology. Uh, that are, um, in that case, we're actually looking at how accurate a black cap chickadee is at uh, finding back a food item uh, in, a, in a room. And you have a lot of trees, that, that one we do in captivity. You have a lot of trees and caching sites, and you give them food in one location, then they go away and they have to memorize the location. When they come back, all of the locations are hidden with little cotton balls and so when they remove the cotton balls you know that the bird's been looking for the food in these locations so that so that also uh, it's not a um, it's not such um, like a long-term uh, traditional test from experimental psychology but the first people who put that out are have been studying uh, psychology for instance I think this one was partly um uh, invented by Dave Sherry uh, in, in Ontario and other people who use that include the uh, Nikki Clayton and Vladimir Pravosudov, yeah.
1: Okay, um, I have a question about cognition, evolution of cognition in general. Are there any instances where an animal evolves to be less co- cognitively complex?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true that we tend to think about cognitive evolution as Always um, becoming more intelligent or better learners, but actually there's a lot of costs to cognition. So, and the first costs are linked with simply having a big brain. For instance, is very costly, and and using the brain is very costly as well uh, in terms of energy demands. So, um, there's been uh, experiments um, that have. Uh, that have measured uh, learning abilities, for instance, and brain size. And there's some uh, experimental evolution uh, that have, uh, where the the researchers have been able to actually reduce the size of the brain uh, uh, or reduce the learning abilities. One classic example is the Mary and Kawaki 2003, I think, uh, paper on experimental evolution in Drosophila, where if you select them for uh, improved learning, uh, then that reduces growth. So there's costs. And then uh, there's an experiment by um, Amy Dunlap and Dave Stevens where they had some control lines and some experimental evolution lines. And depending on the benefits of learning, you can actually decrease their learning ability or increase their learning ability. So it, it's not always you know, going for the better. It depends on the costs and the benefits of, of learning. And that's uh, one um that's one aspect that is hard uh, to at the moment we know so little about the link between the the natural challenges in the environment and the cognitive processes that it's hard to make predictions as to when we should expect uh, selection to be favoring increased cognitive abilities or favoring decreased cognitive abilities because the the information that the animals could get is not so useful uh, but yeah we could um, there's some where you could imagine that if the animal doesn't have to learn about food anymore, uh, for instance, in domesticated uh, species, often the brain will be reduced and the cognitive abilities as well, uh, because they don't have to learn about predators anymore, they don't have to find their own food. So that's an example, but it could happen also in natural stration, not just in the domesticated species.
1: Great. Uh, Moving on. um, So in the current political scenario, facts don't seem to matter for people, Um, people ignore um, facts, basically. So how do you think as a scientist um, or as a science student, um, um, how do you think science students or scientists can make a difference in changing this?
0: Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, Well, I think for a start, if... um if you make efforts at communicating your research and making it interesting for the people around you, the people that will listen to a blog, that will read an article. So if the research is somehow appealing for someone who doesn't know about the research or doesn't know about science, they might get interested. And if they get interested, they'll start reading, they'll start being informed, and then the facts may have more effects. So I guess people sometimes feel remote from science and they feel they, they cannot access it or they cannot get information um, uh, easily or they say, oh, it's all too complicated, I don't or I don't understand this. So maybe they kind of, they give up and then they say, that's it, I'm, I'm not going for the facts or for the scientific information. And if you can uh, make uh, some, especially the young people, if you can make them interested in science, then there's a better chance that, they will talk about it to their friends or they'll go into a scientific career. So um, so yeah, we all have a responsibility in, in general to communicate our research and make it accessible for the public.
1: And also do you think we need to make some changes in a way in in the way we do science? Um, and if you had the power, what, what would you change in the way we do science?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm not really sure that like probably a lot of, a lot of things uh, we need to change um, but maybe what I would what I started thinking about when, when you mentioned this is, is how we can actually change things so there's a lot of things We're like oh I don't like for instance the way if I don't like the way that publication uh, world works well there's people that start alternatives to it now I think there's a lot of people taking actions to change science and science is what the scientists make of science, and it's, it's all based on a community of people. So I think there's a lot of uh, ways in which you can act on science, and, and, and even in your you know, at, at a small scale, at a small level in your interaction with your colleagues, with your student, the way you interact with people is actually changing how people perceive the relationships and the interactions in the scientific world. So I'm not sure exactly what I would change, but definitely uh, one thing I tried to do uh, as the years were passing by and I was staying in science is not to change who I am, but to try to make a space for who I am in science. And I think scientists are open-minded enough to um, be welcoming and supportive of, of people that want to keep their identity and don't want to... There's no perfect scientist that you have to become. You have to learn a lot and, and push yourself hard, uh, but there's a lot of space for changing how science is done and not having to necessarily change the person you are to be a scientist.
1: Okay, that, that, that was my last question. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add?
0: Uh, no, I think that's pretty good. So, um, Okay. thinking about it. No, well, that's good. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. So uh, if anybody wants to contact you, um, what's the best way? Do you have a Twitter or your website, maybe?
0: Yeah, so my website or by by email, jmf.ua.ca uh,
1: Great. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Julie. No problem. It's a pleasure. That was Dr. Julie Moran-Ferrant. I'm your host, Ravindra, and you can follow me on Twitter at ravindra-pn. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore P-N. And don't forget to check out JournalofAnimalEcology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.